Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director at SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as for to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome two uh, investors from the same firm who have invested and uh, not only made a lot of money, but made a lot of impact in the world investing in these big ideas uh, that we like to empower at SALT. And our guests today are Lauren Kolodny and Teresa Gao of A-Crew Capital. Uh, Lauren Kolodny is a co-founder and managing partner at A-Crew, where she leads investments in FinTech and Future of Work. Uh, prior to founding A-Crew, Lauren was a partner at Aspect Ventures. Her investments include Chime, Divi, Evident ID, Gusto, La House, Papaya Payments, Pi Insurance, Terra.ai, among many others. Uh, previously, Lauren worked in product marketing at Google, where she led a number of launches uh, for G Suite, including Google Drive. Uh, Lauren began her career building tech and finance partnerships for the Clinton Foundation in India. Lauren is a trustee emerita at Brown University, where she served as the university's youngest board member. She's currently a member of the President's Leadership Council. She's been recognized in publications as Wall Street Journal's 10 Women to Watch list, Business Insider's Rising Stars of Venture Capital, and she was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for Venture Capital uh, in 2016. And I think we're probably around the same age, so I'm feeling uh, not very accomplished right now after leading, uh, reading Lauren's bio. But uh, Teresa Gao is our second panelist today. Teresa is a co-founder and managing partner at A-Crew Capital as well, and was a co-founder and partner at Aspect Ventures. Uh, prior to Aspect, Teresa was a, man a managing general partner at Excel. Uh, as an entrepreneur, Teresa was the founding VP of business development and sales at Release Software, a venture-backed company that provided software as a service to enable digital rights management and payment technologies for the software industry. Earlier, she worked at Bain & Company and as a product manager at Silicon Graphics. Uh, Teresa led early investments in Cato Networks, Deserve, Exabeam, The Muse, Crew, ShieldX, Observable, Predict HQ, and Solve Health. She's a first-generation immigrant, a passionate supporter of educational causes, and increasing diversity in the tech industry. Teresa was named to Forbes' 100 Most Powerful Women list, and has been recognized nine times on the Forbes Midas list, including in 2020, and was named one of the 40 most influential minds in tech by Time Magazine, as well as being named to the Carnegie Corporation's annual Distinguished Immigrants list. Hosting today's talk is our good friend, uh, Sarah Kuntz. She's a founder and managing director at Clio Capital, a venture capital firm. Sarah has been gracious enough to bring us a lot of wonderful guests on Salt Talks and moderate uh, some great conversations, and we're looking forward to another one today. Thank you again, Sarah, for doing that. Uh, but with no further ado, you've heard enough from me. Sarah, uh, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, John. And I am so excited uh, to, to have these amazing women here today. Um, they are both my friends and, and we get to partner together on investments. Um, Teresa is an investor in my fund and it's just wonderful to, to all be here today. So um, with that, uh, those were great bios, but I always love to hear it direct. So, you know, Lauren, I'd, I'd love to have you kind of jump in and, and tell us, you know, kind of how you got here and, and then we'll have Teresa to do the same. Absolutely. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks, John, for having us. I'm excited to chat with you all today. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my path um, and, and how I ended up in, in venture, a bit circuitous, but that tends to be the case in this industry, I would say. So I, I grew up in San Diego, uh, uh, studied undergrad uh, at Brown University, where I focused on um, economic development and specifically technology as a driver of economic development. I, I then went on uh, right out of school to work for the Clinton Foundation on technology partnerships. And in that context, and I was, I was based in India um, and in really early days, prior to the last recession, really early days of mobile money and started to see kind of how um, technology was driving financial inclusion in meaningful ways. And I think that really inspired me on some of the uh, work that I've done since. Um, and then 
after after wrapping up at the Clinton Foundation, I went and worked at Google in product marketing on the Google Apps team before it became G Suite, as you heard. So I led the Google Drive launch and a bunch of others. But in that context, I think I got really excited about consumerization of enterprise and bottoms up business models, um, which also segues into where I now spend time. Um, and meanwhile, actually, while I had been living um, in India with the Clinton Foundation, uh, I had been asked to join the board of trustees at Brown University. Um, they had done a governance review and determined that they uh, needed uh, some more representative perspective uh, around the board. Um, and uh, I was fortunate and, and, and joined. And in, in that context, I actually got to know Teresa. So we worked really closely together on projects related to digital strategy for the university and a bunch of others. And um, she became kind of a, a friend and, and mentor. Um, and so then when I moved to Silicon Valley to work at Google, we ended up spending more time together. Um, I then went to, to business school at Stanford. And um, as I was gearing up to graduate, Teresa uh, let me know that she was gonna be leaving Excel to start Aspect. And I was very eager to, to join her in that endeavor. So was the first investor on the team there, um, built out our FinTech investing practice, uh, as well as some of our future and work investing, um, and then happily uh, uh, co-founded Acrew Capital with her uh, in 2019. Um, so happy to tell you more about that that part of the journey, as I'm sure I'm sure we will. But that's that's kind of the summary of of how I got here. Awesome, Teresa. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having us. Um, so I'll try to be brief because I think that. Um, John covered a lot of it, so thank you both for having us. So came to the US, I uh, was born in Jakarta, Indonesia. We came to the US when I was quite young. I actually lived, I know we have some shared roots, lived in Michigan at first for a little while, Sarah. Um, ended up growing up in a small town outside of Buffalo, New York. Uh, went to Brown undergrad, um, studied uh, engineering there. Uh, quickly realized that what I, I, while I loved technology, which was why I did engineering, I really thought that um, you know being more on the product management side seemed more interesting than um, sitting behind a computer um, doing CAD drawings all day. Uh, so I decided that, so the only people that I, I, I worked at General Motors and I worked at British Petroleum and the only people who moved from engineering to product management all had these things called MBAs. I didn't necessarily know what that was. I looked it up, um, studied for my GRE and decided that that was what I needed to do if I was gonna become a product manager. And so um, was fortunate to uh, get into Stanford Business School. Laura and I both went there, came out here to the Valley, I thought for a few years, um, have never left, uh, fell in love with the Valley and learned that there were these things called startups, not just big giant companies uh, like Silicon Graphics or Hewlett Packard or others. And um, went, went back to consulting for a little bit to pay for my business school loans and my undergrad loans. Uh, but as soon as, as soon as that was done, um, joined a couple of classmates from Stanford Business School who had just raised a seed round in funding. This was the late 90s, um, so forever ago in the last decade, uh, doing this company that was trying to do digital rights management, encryption payment for software downloads over the internet. Uh, when the internet was mostly dial-up internet. So it had to be really, really small software <laughs> or software that you could download at work, like uh, like Adobe or Netscape servers. And anyway, that was how I got to know what venture capital was, helped raise a bunch of venture capital, um, decided that I wanted to leave that startup when we had our third CEO in 12 months. I, I didn't know a whole lot, but I was like, hmm, probably not really great for my stock options. Um, so maybe I'll go to my VC board members and see if they have other startups that uh, are looking for somebody with my background. And that was how I ended up in venture. Um, uh, one of my board members introduced me to three super early stage pre-A companies um, and also introduced me to three venture funds. Um, that's how I ended up at Excel, joined in 99, was there for... 15 years um, doing early stage and mix of early and late stage investing uh, in, I spend a lot of time in cybersecurity and infrastructure, um, also do some future of work investing along with Lauren and actually also um, do some uh, community activated and consumer net investments in things like, uh, in things like Trulia uh, early days as well as Hotel Tonight, which is now part of Airbnb. So. Um, anyway, it's a range of different things. You do something long enough, all the sectors start to make sense. I love it. Um, Teresa, do you know that I spent more out of pocket on Hotel Tonight than I did on college? 
You did not. Yes. It's the only thing I've used for travel, personal and for fun, or personal and for work. And you know how much work travel there is. So literally, I have spent, um, I think like, yeah, like, like I'm like level, like, I don't know, 30 something. So yes, yes, <laughs> that's. Wow, you're crushing, you're, you're crushing me. I'll, I'll let Sam know. He'll be very happy. I, I remember. So we did we did a later stage, what we call a proprietary investment in Hotel Tonight in the last out of out of our first funds, uh, Lauren and I working together in Vishal, um, which which Sam was like, he'd grown the company and he had turned it profitable. And he was like, Teresa, this is going to be like my last round before we get bought or go public. And we were like, we're all in. And then, yeah, like 12 months later, then they got got bought by Airbnb. And then obviously they've had a really successful IPO last time. But I first met them when it was a seed investment. And I remember exactly when it was because I think he was one of my first meetings after my second maternity leave. So like my son, my youngest was born in July of 2009. So I must have met him in like August of 2009 because I was back after like two to three weeks. Anyway, and it was, he was only in like two cities and it was only on i it was only on ios they didn't even have android and they literally didn't even have a website wow. but um you know he he saw that like the move to mobile was like real and just shrinking down your like bookings.com or expedia website onto your mobile phone was not going to do it and just completely remade the user experience and he's done a great job yeah, I just checked. I've stayed 140 nights in Weezy <laughs> Hotel tonight, which also means that I'm a little bit ungrounded, but uh, happy to be helpful to the portfolio. Um, so, so I would love to talk about a crew. Um, you know, tell us about about the team. You know, your your uh, well, tell us all the things, right? The, the the founding, the team, the the AUM, the stage, the sectors. But you know, the thing that I find so fascinating um, and, and really inspiring is sort of your your approach to having a cross-generational team and kind of what that means around decision-making and all of that. So, so Teresa, I would love for you to talk about kind of the founding and that piece of it. And then we'll, we'll throw it to Lauren to talk a little bit about kind of the, the size stage and, and sectors. Actually, let me suggest if it's okay with you, Sarah, can we do it in the reverse way? Lauren, why don't you talk about the founding and then I'll, cause it'll lead into some of the new things we're doing in terms of stage. Sure. Happy to do that. Um, so as I said, so so our team has been investing together now through three funds, um, initially at Aspect and now at ACRU. Uh, and so and so the bulk of the team um, that we worked with together at Aspect is is part of the ACRU team. When we launched ACRU in um, uh, in 2019, uh, we spent a lot of time. We actually spent three days in an offsite, all of the all of the five founders thinking about our values and. You know who we really wanted to be, what what learnings we wanted to take from our past experience, what we wanted to leave behind, and what 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 we wanted to be. And one of the things that I think is just super core to us, it's in our name, um, is our team orientation. So the the name A Crew uh, has the emphasis on crew by design. Of course, we also like the finance double entendre, and uh, you know uh, certainly attempt to accrue meaningful value for for all of our investors. But um, but I think that you know, we really wanted to put a stake in the ground around this notion that venture can really be played as a team sport. And, um, and that in doing so, um, you can take advantage of the diversity of perspective that exists on your team. And, and Teresa, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but, you know, we've been really thoughtful there too, in terms of really trying to design a team that, you know, represents a lot of different perspectives, both, you know, in terms of background and lived experience, gender, um, race and ethnicity. And so, um, and so uh, that means that, uh, as, as you mentioned, Sarah, we have actually three generations on the founding team itself. Um, we, we think that is pretty um, unique. A lot of our, you know, peer firms get founded by age peers and then add more people to the team later, um, you know, in a clear hierarchy where, you know, we really wanted to make sure that we were, um, building something to kind of stand the test of time. And we figured one of the ways to do that was to make sure we had multiple generations on, on the founding team. And the way that we take advantage of all of the diverse perspectives, both among those founders and in terms of the new, newer team members that we've brought on, is that we uh, give everyone on the investing team, regardless of seniority level, an equal voice in investing decision-making. So. Uh, Everyone is allowed to uh, veto a deal. We uh, doesn't happen often, but occasionally it does. Um, and 
to varying degrees, everyone is is enabled and empowered to um, to actually lead a deal. For the more junior investors, it's you know it's uh, seed investments, but we really try to give everyone a meaningful seat at the table um, when when um, when it comes to uh, the vast majority of what we do, which is making investments. So that's kind of the philosophy uh, of the firm, and and we're really proud of of what we're building uh, and the team that we're building it with. So awesome. just. Just adding on to that and then like getting into our stage and sector. So adding on to that, I think the other part of the team orientation on the investments is that every investment has two deal team sponsors. Obviously, that doesn't mean we, well, we rarely take two board seats, I try to think almost never, but there's got to be two people on the investing team who are equally excited and pounding the table about it. So we think that using the team elements actually strengthens our decision making because we need to have at least two people on the team that are really excited about a potential new investment. And that's a, that's a good sort of counterbalance to the fact that like any one person could say no to a deal. Um, and as Lauren was saying, I mean, fortunately that doesn't happen very often because it's a much more collaborative process. Like if, if Lauren and I are championing a deal and someone else on the deal team has some strong concerns, they'll bring it up in the group meeting, but they'll probably also call me aside if I'm the, the lead or Lauren if she's the lead. Um, and sort of be like, hey, Sarah, I want to make sure you really heard what I was asking you. Please look into this. I've got some serious concerns. So it works out really well from that perspective. It also works because we're very thesis driven in our investing. So you could be at a crew for five or six years, like Lauren and myself, or you could be at a crew for five or six weeks. But if you are part of the fintech practice that Lauren and Vishal lead, right? You've been spending time, you're very aware of what's in our portfolio, the things that we've been looking at. And so you can quickly get up to speed and know an awful lot about, um, you know, consumer financial services or fintech infrastructure, because you've been looking at our portfolio in things like everything from Chime and Phoenix and, and Pi and Divi. And so you, you can get up to speed much more quickly, even if you're a new investor. So being thematically driven. And so in addition to fintech, our other big sectors, I would say are um, cybersecurity and infrastructure, um, future of work or work reimagined, sorry, new name, work reimagined um, that Lauren um, led. And we've got investments like Gusto, for example, in that sector. Um, also um, community activated, as we were talking about with um, Hotel Tonight or The Real Real as some examples. And then a fifth sector, which is a little bit more in like cross sector, what we call data interconnected, like data APIs and data platforms. So that kind of, there's a lot of cross sectors there. So that's how we think about our investments, Sarah, as we're very thematic. And I know we've got uh, some co-investments with you in, I think, that certainly would be, you know, financial services reimagined, but it might also be in part of our data platform. So we have a lot that kind of fit into two. Uh, and then historically, we've been mostly early stage focused, which is why we're excited to partner with you on some of these early stage things. So seed and A, but as you could see, even with the hotel tonight example, like these companies, you know, over three, four, five years, some of them we hope many of them, but some of them grow to be market leaders in their space and they become what would traditionally be thought of as growth stage or late stage investments. So just this week, we announced that we were adding on to the A crew capital platform, double entendre on purpose, as Lauren said. Um, in addition to um, raising our fourth early stage fund, we will, we've announced that we're doing our growth stage fund. Our spin on the growth stage, late stage fund is an entity called A crew Diversify Capital Fund. So it's A crew DCF as all of the existing A-Crew founders and investors as core members of it. And we're excited that we've added a couple of new folks onto the team, both as formal team members like Sukinder Singh Cassidy as a, as a venture partner onto that platform. And then also some great advisors and partners like Sarah uh, and Charles um, from Precursor and others. So uh, yeah, that's 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 where we are. We're, we're, we're deepening our sector focus and now we can invest both at the early stage and the late stage. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and huge, huge congrats on the announcement of the new fund or, or the Opportunity Fund and, and uh, super far past time. And, and I think uh, what the work you do there that we get to do there will, will be really, really impactful, um, which is very exciting. That That's great. Um, you know, Lauren, it'd be awesome to have you kind of dive into some of the the areas uh, like work reimagined and financial resources rebuilt, you know, that, that you spend time thinking about too. 
Sure, I'm happy to. Um, so you 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 got kind of the the overview of the categories from Teresa. Maybe I'll spend a little bit of time talking about what we're focused on in financial services rebuilt. And and yes, clearly that is a fancy name for fintech, but it's not just marketing language. There actually is a sort of intentional thesis behind it, which is that you know we think that if you look at all of the activity that's happened in fintech over the last decade. Um, it's it's really catalyzed a new opportunity. So so if I think about this last sort of era in fintech development, we saw a lot of companies that built amazing digital faces to existing financial products. Um, They democratized access, they came up with much more creative distribution strategies, um, and they really leveraged technology to, to sort of deliver a better consumer experience but changing legacy financial infrastructure is very hard. And so, you know, that was less possible in what I would characterize as this first kind of major wave in fintech. As a result of the success of so many companies um, like Chime, where we're very proud to be investors, um, but, you know, also clearly Plaid and, and many others, I think uh, we are starting to see some real sort of dynamic changes in the industry where, um you know, legacy financial institutions are really coming to the table to engage more deeply in um, in this reinvention. And a lot of money is being put into uh, really rebuilding the, the sort of financial software stack from the ground up. Um, so as a result of that, you know, we're seeing a lot of opportunity in um, financial infrastructure itself. Uh, uh, clearly, there is a lot of momentum there to kind of rebuild things like the legacy banking core that was built in the 1970s and hasn't changed since then. Um, but we're also seeing, um, and we believe there will be kind of a new wave of consumer fintech um, and user level fintech as a result of this, um, where in leveraging financial infrastructure that's being built, um, entrepreneurs will actually be able to create fundamentally new financial products than have ever been offered before. And that's that's what we're really excited about. And that's where we're uh, where we're looking for new opportunities. And, and by the way, you know, what's interesting is that you couple that with the fact that as a result of COVID and this remote world that we're all living in, um, new populations are actually much more, I think, addressable for FinTech than they had been before. So clearly Gen Z up and coming, not a lot of assets yet, but we'll be entering the workforce. That one we all could have anticipated. What I think is, is interesting, we might not have otherwise anticipated is that, you know, um, that a retiree population, as an example, uh, has been forced to live their lives online and are now more comfortable adopting digital first products. And I think that'll extend to, to fintech. So we're looking for opportunities there as well. Are you on Wall Street bets? I, I mean, I feel like I, yes, I am. I feel like I have to be, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the only way to keep up with the market. Exactly. I wouldn't, be a, I wouldn't be a prudent fintech investor if I wasn't at least following what's going on. So exactly, exactly. Um, awesome. No, that that's super. That that's awesome. And you know, at my fund, we look at a lot of the same areas, and totally agree. I I you know was just having this conversation uh, with a friend earlier that you know I think Lauren we're the same age, and I don't remember you know, even as, as like smart, you know, undergrads or right out of college, like we were super focused on like getting a good job and like, you know, putting money into your 401k. I don't really remember sitting around like trading stock tips. Um, and this was like when I lived in New York and like my office building was like in the same office building as a hedge fund, right? It just wasn't really uh, something that, that people were talking about. And now, you know, you go on TikTok and obviously it's how my for you page is curated, but there's so many kids and they're not coming out of, you know, major universities with finance degrees or econ degrees. They're just sort of, you know, talking about stocks the way that, you know, maybe an earlier generation, you would have talked about sports teams. And so it's really, really fascinating. Um, I don't know, you know, when you look at things like, like the, the whole GameStop debacle, I don't know if you call it necessarily, you know, financial literacy, but it's certainly financial exploration in a way that, that I truly do think for this generation, we'll, we'll see if it lasts, um, but it, but it has kind of become a part of their culture in a way that, that I don't think we saw even 10, 12 years ago. I totally agree. And I think the other thing on that too, Sarah, is like, you and I have talked about this before. I think there's a massive opportunity for collaborative personal finance and it's really coming to light as a result of this, right? Like it's, it's showing how this generation really cares about, you know, uh, 
maybe 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 GameStop is not the best example for uh, a a sort of prudent uh, uh, collaborative investment, but I think like the the idea that people want to learn from each other and understand what their friends are investing in and, you know, make decisions informed by their peers, I think is very real. And I think that's going to extend across financial services on a go forward basis. So I I don't think this generation is as um, closed off about personal finance as, as others that have come before. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I I also think there's a lot more transparency and people aren't sort of refusing to to talk about, uh, you know, how much money they make or where they're making it from, which I think is great. Exactly. I think something that's interesting, Sarah, talking about GameStop and and sorry to jump in here, but a fascinating conversation. You know, there's two things that happened with GameStop. One of them was the collaboration that took place over the last year on Wall Street Bets, where there actually was an interesting thesis. They're going to pivot to e-commerce. There's all kinds of other elements. I don't want to get into the full story of it, but I had a front row seat to it because a friend of mine who works in biotech life sciences approached me a few months ago and said, GameStop, I'm on on this Reddit channel. There's this amazing story that they've put together about why GameStop is going to transition to be a dominant e-commerce platform for video games, and they're going to get out of the bricks and mortar business. I said, actually, it's kind of compelling, but I have certain restrictions as a regulated uh, financial services professional around you know, buying individual stocks. I didn't participate in that with him, but he made a substantial amount of money, sold a little bit early, uh, you know, didn't ride it all the way to the top, but also wasn't left holding the bag like some people. I think the mania that happened in the aftermath of the construction of that thesis is separate and distinct from uh, what was a really collaborative process of people that are smarter than I think the media is giving them credit for now that built this thesis around GameStop. Yeah, I, I remember once in eighth grade advanced math, my teacher, um, we had to pick our predictions for, for the stock market. And I picked, it was right before the Super Bowl. So I picked, uh, you know, free delay. And I was like, I think it's going to go up because it's an exciting Super Bowl this year. So people are going to buy more snacks. And she's like, that's not how earnings work. That's not how the stock market works. But it's exactly how the stock market works. And, and so it's interesting, I think, to see some of that, you know, it took me what, 20 years, but I was right. And I just want my math teacher to know if she was watching, I was right. Um, but but I think that people are slowly realizing, you know, that that their everyday instincts, what they're interested in, like we we are the market. And, and as that happens, I do think that especially Gen Z is getting a lot more involved in, in trading it for, for better or for worse. Um, that's awesome. So for a totally different topic, Teresa, I would love to have you dive into uh, kind of cybersecurity, infrastructure, you know, the, the work that, that you're doing there, what are you seeing there right now that's exciting? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. So um, I think that, and maybe a way to sort of tie it together is at the end of this, I think there's some intersections between cybersecurity and particularly um, cryptocurrencies that we're invested in. And maybe that's a lead in to you and Lauren can talk about our joint investment uh, in that space. because. Uh, uh, but in general, so look, I think there's been a, the good and the bad news is cybersecurity is sort of like, it's the sect, it's the gift that keeps on giving, right? So when I started doing cybersecurity investments um, in, in the early 2000s, it was really because of my, actually because of my lived experience when I was an entrepreneur. We were doing encryption and payments, and it was still really, really hard to get like an export license to do 1024-bit encryption, to do payments um, outside of the United States. That was all stuff that I had to do as um, as, a build, as the product and business development lead. So in 2000, when there were no more consumer <laughs> opportunities to be done and the music had stopped, it's like, okay, what am I gonna do? Gotta find something that's gonna be interesting and still investable. And so it started out as sort of more of a backwater, but it was like, look, th- this isn't gonna go away. People are eventually gonna start buying things on the internet again, crazy, right? Um, and so we gotta figure out the security part of the payments piece, right? At that point, unlike the things that you guys were just talking about and that you're investing in now, there weren't really alternatives, right? It was like, you had to figure out how to connect into the old legacy Cobalt and TISA systems so that you could take credit card payments and all that kind of stuff. But there was a whole new layer of security that needed to be built on it. So that was kind of like the first wave. The interesting thing about security is in addition to the fact like the bad guys from like, from the early days 
for those of you who remember, you might you might remember from watching it as retro, right? Like it used to start out, if you remember Matthew Broderick and War Games, we used to call those those hackers script kiddies because they were a lot like, you know, these like uber smart, uber precocious, like high school kids who just wanted to prove that they could hack into stuff to show how cool they were um, or how smart they were. And then as time went on, like in sort of like once 99 was sort of the internet happened, like in 99, 2000, it was a lot of um, organized bad dudes trying to make money, right? Like phishing scams, stealing people's credit cards, all of those things. Obviously with what happened last year with um, the SolarWinds hack, it, and even before that, we think about the Sony hack. That the Sony hack was probably the first prov provable like nation state attack. I bring up all this stuff to say uh, that what started out is like, hey, I gotta find some stuff to invest in in 2000 um, and was like really a small part of the venture investment ecosystem has become not quite as large as FinTech, but if you look like probably like, usually it's in the top three, like second or third in terms of sector. So it's a big deal now. Everybody needs to worry about it, even small companies, even individuals. So I think the biggest trend, so there's, there's the bad guys trend, and then there's sort of on the bottoms up infrastructure. Like every time there's a conversion and last year, the biggest positive thing in tech was the pull forward of people's adoption and moving to the cloud, especially to the public cloud or hybrid cloud was accelerated by five or 10 years. And people see that in terms of a bunch of the infrastructure stocks that were like super hot last year, like Snowflake, for example, but also security companies like CrowdStrike just had a crazy year last year. And we see it with our private security companies too, because what happens is whenever there's an infrastructure change, all the big traditional financial service institutions, governments, they have to buy a whole new set of security solutions because the last set that they're using was for the wrong, they're protecting the wrong infrastructure, the wrong stuff underneath. So that creates an opportunity. And then, you know, maybe not surprisingly, but like work from home last year, just accelerated the security opportunity because people usually price security based on like number of endpoints, amount of bandwidth. Well, even even for Acru, you know, our like 12 person company, right? We went from having, you know, two offices to now we have 12. <laughs> um, so everybody's spending had to increase. So I think that's the biggest thing. So it's the sophistication of the bad guys, which means that you need to have more and more sophisticated countermeasures, um, and then just the massive acceleration of cloud means everyone needs, if you were thinking, if you were a big enterprise and you were thinking about the slow transition and therefore also slow security transition over the next three to five years, it happened in three to six months or else you just weren't doing business. So those are the trends that we saw last year and they're continuing apace this year for sure. I, I think most people, most of the surveys, nobody thinks it's gonna go back to what it was before. So even if we're not 100% work from home, we're gonna be in this hybrid environment, which means that the scale of the infrastructure that needs to be secured has grown massively. That, those are those are all excellent points. Uh, it feels like cybersecurity has gone from something that is someone else's problem to something that is that is everyone's problem, um, and and it will only continue. Um, that, like you said, is is a great segue um, into a deal that we got to do together recently. That was super exciting. Um, I'll have maybe Lauren. Do you want to talk a little bit about Alto IRA and kind of what they do, and then with, we can chat about uh, getting to to work on it together. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, one of the other kind of sub themes that has been interesting lately, and, and, and it ties in perfectly well to this conversation we were just having about, you know, GameStop and personal trading and everything else is, is the democratization of alternative assets. Um, so, you know, more and more people are recognizing they see these companies that are performing exceptionally well in the stock market, but they know that people like us are are getting in earlier, right? And so, so tech is one example, private tech companies, one example of a category of alternative assets that I think is quite appealing to a lot of people, but as is real estate and, and many others, right? And so um, what Alto IRA does is it enables uh, people to move their IRA investment, their like traditional IRA, uh, into alternative asset, assets. And there are obviously major tax benefits to doing that. I think that it is, um, and, and, and tends to be kind of where people want to, uh, 
IRAs tend to be where people want to source kind of their capital for alternatives, um, at least when they're first dabbling into the space. Um, I think what's really interesting for the company is, is an opportunity to kind of help facilitate alternative asset investments more broadly um, down the line. Uh, and that that is what I got really excited about um, and uh, why I was excited to, to collaborate with Sarah on this, um, because I know it's a space that uh, that you all at Clio with Future of Income have been thinking about a lot too. Well, Sarah, I don't, I don't uh, know if you even know this, but I got to chime in on uh, Alto IRA. So we use Alto IRA at Skybridge. So we recently launched a Bitcoin fund. You know, we, we saw sort of the, the marketplace of different Bitcoin products out there. And some of our client base weren't comfortable with investing in Bitcoin via Coinbase or the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So we created a private fund for accredited investors um, to invest in Bitcoin, just a passive product. But we've used Alto IRA uh, for people who want to invest via their IRA. Fantastic platform. The team there is extremely responsive. So hats off to you guys uh, for identifying that company and, and helping them grow because it's a great solution uh, for us. And we think we're going to continue to do more business on the platform. Awesome. That, that is great news. We love customers. Um, yeah, we, we actually, uh, in, in, uh, so, you know, uh, the A crew team had already invested in Alto and, and, uh, Lauren brought it to me and I was super excited to chat with them. And then in that conversation, uh, you know, we actually led to, to us being able to help them partner with, with Gemini as well. And I know that the, the twins were on, uh, salt talks not too long ago. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an awesome product. And, you know, for us with our future of income thesis, it made a lot of sense and, and complicated consumer, which is these are, you know, hard things to manage. Most people, the bulk of their net worth is wrapped up in, in pretty illiquid assets like their home or, you know, their, their IRAs. And so being able to make that a little bit more self-directed, um, you know, that that's a really powerful tool. And if you've ever tried to uh, do a self-directed IRA without tech help, it is, uh, from everything I've heard, one of the most painful experiences in the finance world, if you can imagine that. So the ability, you know, to do it easily and simply um, and, and cost effectively is, is really kind of a huge game changer when it comes to accessing things like crypto or, or like, you know, investing in, in private equity vehicles or venture capital or, or even some real estate vehicles. So really, really, uh, we, we are talking our book, but uh, it's a book that, that you know, makes, makes the world of investing a lot more accessible. And I, I think that that's something that, that everybody on this call gets super excited about. So yeah, that was, that was an awesome company. And, and we're just so excited to, to see them grow. Um, so, so let's talk about your billion dollars. Sorry, John has a question. John. I know I, I hate to take up too much, too much oxygen, but uh, we were talking about the legacy financial system, you know, being disrupted by FinTech and, uh, Goldman Sachs, you know, we have several Goldman Sachs alumni at Skybridge, so I hate to throw them under the bus, but they came out recently with some negative research on Bitcoin, basically saying they'll never allow Bitcoin into client accounts at their private bank. And I find it ironic. They're also jockeying for uh, the Coinbase, or they were jockeying for the Coinbase IPO. Uh, Coinbase is doing you know, Dutch auctions right now for price discovery ahead of a direct listing. And I think there's a decent chance that in the first few weeks of it going public, that Coinbase's market cap could exceed Goldman Sachs's. So just the irony of, of that disruption that's taking place is interesting to watch for us as sort of somebody who has one foot in the legacy system and one foot trying to invest in uh, disruption in the space. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's that's the smart thing. Like, will the multiples hold? You know, I am I am a good Michigander. So, you know, put a glass of wine in me and ask if I really believe Tesla's worth more than, you know, the big three automakers. And, and you know, I, I might have some controversial opinions, but the reality is that these, these you know, newcomers, I, I think, are massively... Um, helping shift uh, where the focus is. And, and you know, I, I think that it it pushes everybody in the industry to to look a little bit more around the corner. And all of a sudden these incumbents can't be can't be sort of comfortable uh, and, and complacent uh, and think they'll be market leaders forever. Um, so yeah, that that is all all great points. Um, speaking of that, uh, to to jump back to kind of the the billion dollar elephant in the room, let's talk a little bit about a tiny little company of yours that I heard is starting to do okay called Chime. Um, would love you know for for both of you to kind of jump in and and tell us about you know the deal and and what made you excited early on, and then you know remind us all of how wildly successful of a ride it's been so far. 
yeah, happy to happy to tell you about it. So, uh, as as hopefully as evident, um, you know, we we are very thesis driven as a firm. And back when we made the Chime investment, um, that was uh, the the case then too. So we had a thesis at the time, um, uh, which was around um, millennials, sort of were were entering the workforce in droves. Um, at the same time, they'd really come of age in the last recession and candidly were quite scarred uh, from it and had pretty inherent distrust in legacy financial institutions. At the time, I think the number was, you know, I mean, one data point that I think was helpful to exemplify this was that only 40% of the population uh, had a credit card. And shockingly, it hasn't gone up much since. Um, but, you know, I think I think that that as a result of, of that experience, Millennials were looking for something that was more transparent um, and uh, and then offered a better consumer experience than what they perceived of, of legacy banks. And then coupled with the fact that millennials also were uh, digital natives and, um, you know, uh, grew up with, with devices and the internet, um, you know, we established this thesis where we really believed that uh, that, that population in particular would adopt a, a digital first bank. Um, and we'd shared that with some of our frequent co-investors, and we were very uh, fortunate that um, both Forerunner and Homebrew uh, had flagged uh, the opportunity for us. Um, the company had just gone through a, a bit of a pivot at the time, um, and were uh, sort of at that moment, sort of now a reflection of what of their current business. Um, and so we led what was kind of the second A, but the Series A for um, the new model into Chime. Um, we were both, uh, Teresa and I, I think pretty blown away by um, the founding team. Um, Chris with deep financial services and fintech expertise as the CEO and Ryan, the CTO uh, who had real technology tops operating as a, a CTO at, at, at Plaxo and Comcast and a bunch of other places. And so um, we really thought they had it in them to kind of, to build this thing. Uh, and we could never have predicted how, just how well they would execute. Um, and I would say, I like to say that their secret weapon uh, is, uh, is, is Melissa Alvarado, their CMO, who is unlike any um, digital marketing person I ever met. Um, so uh, they scaled this thing um, and, you know, we invested, our, our round was in 2016 at a $34.5 million post money valuation. And the most recent round led by KOTU um, has them sitting at just over 14 and a half billion. So uh, it has been a pretty wild ride. T, I don't know if there's anything you would add. I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is that um, when I talked a little bit before about uh, the fact that we have, you know, we need two people who have high conviction and it's 100 percent Lauren, Lauren's thesis, Lauren built this, Lauren's driven all of our, uh, along with now with Vishal after she recruited Vishal, um, our fintech practice. Um, I think for sure it was Lauren's conviction on it, but I think that it really works when you have uh, two people. Uh, who have conviction on an investment. Uh, and sometimes you need that to overcome some other people who might not be as close to the sector. And granted, I'm not close, but I, I think very highly of Lauren, spent a lot of time listening to her thesis about this. And so when Chris, so the one thing I do know is like, uh, I think after doing this for a long time, as, as I'm sure you feel too, Sarah, like, we need to know our thesis areas. We need to know about technology. We need to know about business model changes. But at the end of the day, especially at the early stage, what are we investing in? We're investing in people. So we need to know when an amazing founding team like Chris and Ryan walk in, like even if you don't, and I will say, even if you don't admittedly understand 100% about all of their business model and what they're trying to build, but you know when someone is an authentic, experienced and passionate founder, I mean, Chris really knew the space. I mean, his prior company, uh, you can look it up. I won't mention it because I don't, and, and it was and it was very successful financially. But what he didn't like about it was that he was using, you know, his knowledge and smarts around how the traditional financial uh, infrastructure worked um, to market to people who had not been, um, who had been overlooked by traditional financial institutions and to market them a product that they wanted, but it wasn't necessarily a great financial trade, a great deal for them. 
right? And so that's why Chime, like it just really, when he told the story, it just spoke to me. He's like, I'm going to take all of that knowledge of how I know how to use ACH and debit rails and not credit card rails because it's more cost effective. I know how to build it. I know, how to, but instead I'm going to use it for good. I'm going to not try to keep all of that, keep, I'm not going to try to keep all of those basis points for my company. I'm going to put it back out into, uh, into my users because what I really want them to do, it, I don't really want to make money on their transactions. I want to make money on them putting their direct deposit and put, you know, becoming their, essentially their, their mobile first, their bank of record, right? So that's maybe a longer story. Part of not, you know, Lauren's story is the whole story, but that was like the specific thing that I was like, all right, so here's, here's, a, here's a guy, here's a team, here's a founder who like, he knows the space deeply, he's had one success, and now he wants to take it to do something else um, that really seemed incredibly thoughtful and authentic and genuine because, you know, it's obviously been a fantastic company, not good, their growth. I mean, those valuations are what they are in public, but it's, it's because it's been driven by their massive growth with accounts. And what he thought about really speaks to the, you know, Main Street America. That's who, that's, that's who's on, that's who's on Chime. And he didn't want to create a product that was just, you know, created by tech dudes for more tech dudes, excuse the shorthand, but something that really was for Main Street America. And I thought he had exactly the right insights on how to do that. And he's obviously turned out to be even more successful than I me. Mean, maybe Lauren saw it, but I was like, okay, he's going to be successful. But I don't know that anybody, you know, in a series A walks in, Sarah, <laughs> when they come in and you're like, oh, it's going to be a $15 billion company. Yeah. Yeah. That it's truly a special company. And on that note, you know, is this a space where it's winner take all like, it, you know, Chime is, is always, I think going to be an outlier in, in terms of its speed to, to market dominance, but you know, what, what is the rest of kind of Neo one, what does the term Neo banking even mean anymore? Right. I feel like anybody with an app uh, that, that links to a bank account is a Neo bank, but um, you know, it, it's interesting to think about like, what, what do you think the future looks like there? Like, is, is there going to be, you know, are, are the big banks going to die and it's going to be all neobanks or the big banks going to become neobanks? What, what happens here? It's a good question. I wish I definitively knew the answer. I guess my view is that, um, I don't think it's winner takes all. I think Chime obviously has a, a real stronghold on, you know, their member population, which is people in the United States that are living paycheck to paycheck, which is the majority of Americans. I think they really speak to that population. Um, but as we've seen, you know, uh, neobanks uh, haven't been super successful at traveling across borders as, as, as is one point. So I do think that um, in different geos, there are still opportunities. Um, I also think that, you know, a lot of this infrastructure is enabling other companies to become financial services providers, right? Um, and you, I think we're going to see a lot more consumer brands that have real loyalty and trust with their, uh, with their, you know, members, their users start to offer banking products kind of embedded in their, in their offering. And we're, we're seeing that already. Um, so I, I think that, you know, the, the movement is towards sort of fintech as a business model, so to speak. And um, I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of like five, 10 years from now, are people still getting a lot of their financial services from traditional financial services providers? Or is it is it more this kind of crop of tech-enabled uh, banks, but also uh, other kind of consumer technology companies? And I, I my bet is my bet is on that. Yeah. It was yeah, funny I mean, the other day. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was Go just going to say, so just building onto that point, and I'm just actually going to turn it back to you, Sarah, because actually in many ways in terms of consumers and thinking about consumer segmentation, um, you're even, you're, you're, you're the deepest one on, on this call, but just building onto what Lauren said, I said, in addition to sort of, there's the geo piece because both consumer tastes as well as regulation different from geography geography. I think what Lauren was saying is if you think about, especially something specifically like time, which is consumer facing, there will be multiple players because there's, you know, they might be the largest, right? The mainstream brand, right? But when you think about consumers in the United States and the winning brands, right? There's always like consumer segmentation, right? There's certain brands and certain offerings, whether that's in banking or in retail and apparel, like it, there's not, there might be one that's the largest because it speaks to sort of like the broadest part of the population, but there's always opportunity for people who speak to a very specific sub-segment 
of the consumer base and have a differentiated value proposition and brand for that consumer. So I think that's how the way we sort of see it playing out. I don't know if that's consistent with the way you think about it. Cause I know you spend time in both of these sectors as yeah, we do. I, I totally agree. I was thinking the other day and obviously I'm friends with them. So it's different, but you know, Gemini is, is gearing up to launch a, a credit card. And I was thinking about how, you know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, you wanted a black card. Like someday in your life, you could maybe get an MX black card. And like, I would take a black card, but I'm like really excited to get a credit card, you know, that is my friend's company. And, and that is a, you know, something that I'm excited about. And so it's just fascinating when you think about that from, from a, where the consumer loyalty goes and, and, you know, to, there's FinTech, it feels like is eating the world. And, and, you know, maybe that that's not such a bad thing. I, I think that exactly you're right. It's going to be a lot more than, you know, Hey, there's only three companies you can trust. Now there's, there's lots of places that, that are, you know, trustworthy. And, and so it really comes down to who shares your values and, and who are you excited to be aligned with? So um, that that is going to be, I think, a really important part about the the decade ahead in fintech. So, this has been so great, um, John. Do you have any last questions? Well, I feel like we're just getting started, but we'll have to have you guys back on for another conversation because we're fascinated by uh, fintech and just the way you guys look at trends. You know, you talked about Chime. We have some involvement there. Uh, it's just interesting, like I said, to see which legacy companies are embracing the future. Uh, it's almost getting to the point now where some of these big banks. Uh, things like Chime and things like Plaid, things like Stripe that maybe a big bank or credit card company might have wanted to buy a few years ago, they can't buy them anymore because they're too big and they're disrupting them. So it's it's a matter of whether they choose to embrace the future or they're they're going to become dinosaurs. So it's fascinating to watch. And uh, congratulations to you guys on on being able to see around the corner and and see some of these stories super early, Sarah, uh, Teresa, and and Lauren. So thank you guys so much for joining us. But uh, we don't want to go too far into overtime here, but it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks yeah, for having thank us. Yeah, thank you. This is great. And thank you everyone who tuned into today's Salt Talk with Lauren Kaladny and Teresa Gao uh, from A Crew Capital. Uh, just a reminder, if you miss any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, whether uh, with venture capitalists or hedge fund managers or uh, public policy innovators, you can access all of our Salt Talks and sign up for our future talks on our website at salt.org backslash talks. Please follow us on social media. We're most active on Twitter, I would say, but we're doing more on Instagram. Uh, we post some of our content on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. And please spread the word about Salt Talks and about Salt. We love growing our community. And this lockdown has uh, sort of offered a silver lining that we've been able to, to grow our brand and grow our community uh, while everybody's sitting at home watching these Salt Talks digitally, as opposed to having the space constraints that we have at our conferences, which we also enjoy. Uh, and uh, on behalf of the entire SALT team, thank you again also to Sarah Koontz for organizing today's talk and inter introducing us to a, a wide variety of, of great guests as well. But on, on behalf of the SALT team and for Sarah uh, signing off for today, we'll see you back here again soon on SALT Talks.